0: and be merry for tomorrow you could die right because we're here for a good time not a long time so let's have a good time so the sun won't shine every day I mean that's life and life is unpredictable but in the end it's right I hope we have the time of our lives and I never felt this way no, okay we went off the rails a little bit at the end there you ever noticed that a lot of our songs, a lot of our rallying cries as a culture are centered around the whole idea of packing as much fun as you possibly can before you die? Life is short, so fit it all in, right? Do as much as you possibly can that's, that's fun, squeeze in the merriment and good times, celebrate good times. Come on. I mean, that's one philosophy in life. Jump in, do as much as you possibly can, and uh, have all the fun while you can. If it feels good, do it. If you have the chance to sit it out or dance, (laughs) I hope you dance. (laughs) Right? It's all about good times. It's all about having fun. That's what life's all about. You don't know when it's going to be over, so you might as well do as much as you possibly can. That's one philosophy that a lot of people live by. However, there is a flip side. And there are people who live on the opposite end of that spectrum and they're like, "It's life is not all about fun and games, is it? They say. You know they, don't you? Quit having fun, you're at work. Quit having fun, kids, you're at school. No laughing at the dinner table. They're destroyers of fun. They walk into a room and they suck out all the fun that's happening like a vacuum of depression. They will snuff out enjoyment at every possible opportunity, the grumpy old misers. These are the people who choose to sit it out, not dance. There is no dancing. There'll be no dancing with them. And I'll be honest, when it comes to the church, when it, when it comes to Christians, and maybe even a little bit kind of historically back throughout history, uh, we haven't always been the most fun. Fun's not a word a lot of people use to describe church. And I'm sure that if, you know, you were to walk downtown and poll people about church and ask, you know, what do you think about church? What was church like growing up when you were a kid? I bet there wouldn't be a lot of people who would say, my church was delightful. (laughs) Full of the most jovial, merrymaking people you have ever met. Every weekend was effervescent. Right? It was, it was blissful and, and wonderful. Maybe, maybe that would be one person out there in the world. I would guess that for most people, as a kid growing up in the church you were in, uh, you were probably forced to go, and you're going to sit on that wooden pew, and you are not going to make a sound. You are not going to doodle on the bulletin, and you will listen as Reverend Bitterheart preaches about how from the King James. <laughs> it might be an exaggeration in the other direction, but I bet it wouldn't be too far for what some of our experiences were like in church and what a lot of other people's experiences were like in church. The church throughout history has been branded by some, perhaps fairly so, as being a little bit unfun. A little bit not super enjoyable. Almost to the point where some people are convinced still to this day that the church or God himself is against fun. He's against pleasure. He's against enjoyment. If it feels good, stop it! You're probably sinning. Right? And some of this you can trace back even to like the Puritan movement, which started off well enough rooted in theology, but over time just became this whole incredibly uptight legalistic way of living to the degree now that we actually use that word to refer to people that we think are incredibly uptight. Quit being such a Puritan. Right? Quit, quit having so much fun. Loosen up a little bit. And we're not talking an exceptionally long time ago We're not just going back a few hundred years to find, like, I remember as a kid growing up, uh, going to a a certain church camp that will remain nameless, but on Sundays, nothing fun was allowed to happen. There was to be no fun on a Sunday. There was no swimming on Sundays. There was no sports on Sundays. Don't think about bouncing a ball. Don't throw a ball. Don't even throw your car keys to someone. That's, That's pretty borderline athletic. That could be fun. Don't do it. Don't swim. Don't put your feet in that river. Don't splash around. I mean, showers. I don't even know if you should shower on Sunday. It's pretty close. It's pretty close to having fun, right, in the water. And there were signs up. like The beach and the ball field were the only two places of enjoyment for the kids at this camp. And both of them had a large sign posted on it. Not on a Sunday, you don't. Don't even think about it. You thought you'd come here to have fun with your friends at camp on a river? No, no, no. And so is it now. I know that's a little bit sarcastic for some people. But as a kid who grew up around that and you saw that, it was confusing as a child. What is a kid left to think other than the church is opposed to fun? God is at odds with me having a good time, at least on a Sunday, because it's God's day. Let's not have fun on God's day. Heaven forbid. It's no wonder people grew up thinking heaven was going to be awful, boring. I don't want to go there. Can't even swim in heaven on a Sunday. It's going to be the worst. And so there are people who still live with that mindset. You know them, don't you? Perhaps some of you have wrestled with those own mindset yourself. And so it seems like our world really kind of has two extremes of people when it comes to fun and enjoyment. And on one kind of flip side over here, the the far side, we've got hedonists. Well, I'm gonna throw myself in, head over heels, with pleasure I will not hold back, I will overindulge, I will have no boundaries and no limitations, do all. And then on the other far side over here, we've got our Puritans who are uptight and pleasure is a naughty word and we will not speak of it in this house. So as a church, where do we land when it comes to fun? Where do we land when it comes to pleasure and enjoyment? What are we allowed to do? What does the Bible say about this? And so the whole reason we're talking about this is because we started a new series last week on the book of Ecclesiastes. And good job you came back, because week one is pretty depressing. We talked about how everything is meaningless, all of it is meaningless. It's a theme that runs throughout the entire book. So I I half thought some of you would just stay in bed and eat Doritos all day, because what's the point? It's all meaningless, I'm not going to bother, but you look like you like showered and ate food today and everything. So job well done. You haven't given up hope yet. And if you missed last week, we talked about the author of the book Solomon, who is known as as the wisest and wealthiest person to ever walk on the planet. He owned everything. He tried everything. He knew everything. He did not hold back from anything, experienced it all, and at the end of his life concluded, eh, meaningless. Except there's a little footnote in there at the end where he says, it's actually meaningless apart from God. God. But it's actually God who gives meaning to all of the things that we do. And we will actually stand before him someday and be held accountable for all of the things that we do. So none of it is meaningless. It's actually very meaningful. We just have to get things in the right order. And so we're going to continue to unpack that this week as we head into chapter 2. And we're going to talk about fun and pleasure. And, and really when we talk about things, what, what we're talking about is the pursuit of contentment. We're going to talk about contentment. What are the things I do in my life to find satisfaction, to find fulfillment, to find fun? What recharges me? What gives me joy? It's, it's all the pursuit of contentment. And that's what we're after. That's what a lot of people in the world are after. It's not a bad thing. And so Solomon decides that I'm, I'm going to try pleasure. I'm going to try all of this stuff, see how it goes. And so we start in chapter 2, verse 1. Says, so I said to myself, it's a sign of intelligence. He was incredibly wise. He talked to himself. He said, Come on, let's try pleasure. Let's look for the good things in life. So we'll stop there. He does this. And what we know from history, what we know from scripture, is that is one of the greatest understatements of all time. Solomon did not just try pleasure. Solomon completely indulged in every act of pleasure that he could find. He overindulged in it for years and years and years and years. Did not hold back, tried everything. He devotes entire decades of his life to trying pleasure. And remember, he's incredibly wealthy. So he's got the means to do this. I mean, if we're being honest, the thing that holds us back in life from doing all the things we want to do is Our budget. I mean, if we're just being completely practical here, the only reason you haven't done all of the things you wanna do is that you did not have the time and you do not have the money. And so it is our budget that determines what our hobbies are. It's our budget that determines how long we get to kind of spend doing those things. It's our budget that determines, I'm gonna go on vacation and I can go this far or this far or this far. But we're usually constrained by those things. And so we have bucket lists. We have these things that it's basically, I'm going to do these things before I die. I can't do them tomorrow because responsibilities and finance and time. And Solomon was not limited by any of those things. He could do all of the things that you want to do right now. He could just go do that. Someday, I will swim in the Great Barrier Reef. Someday, I will kayak down the Amazon River. Someday, I will Own a castle in England? I don't know. Maybe not that one. (laughs) But money. Money. See, Solomon was not limited by money, and he could do all of those things. Did not have to worry about time off. He could go whenever he wanted. He did not have to worry about what his visa bill was going to be. He had more money than he knew what to do with. He had literal piles of gold surrounding him, so much so that people did not know how to keep track of it. And he was the king, and so gold just kept coming in. Some of it was because of taxes, some of it was trade, some of it was commerce, some of it was tribute from other communities and other towns that were around them. But but he literally would get 10,000 more uh, pounds of gold every single year to the point where they didn't know how much he had. Most scholars would estimate he was a multi-billionaire back in the hundreds of years before Christ. So when he says, I tried pleasure, he had nothing holding him back. He tried pleasure. And now, for us, we understand that that's actually pretty dangerous. If you were to give someone a billion dollars and all the time in the world and said, go have fun, it would destroy us. Right? And, And we hear about this happening. We hear about people who win the lottery. They win $20 million, and five years later, they're broke. They're homeless. They've destroyed all of their relationships. They couldn't handle it. It was too much. It was too much freedom, too much opportunity. But remember, Solomon is the wisest person to ever walk on the earth. So he doesn't just have the wealth. He's got the brains to go with it. It's the perfect combination for someone to decide, I'm going to try everything there is to do with pleasure and experience all of it, and I will remain cool-headed the entire time so I can determine whether or not this works. And so he does. So this is what he does to pursue pleasure, verse 3. says, After much thought, I decided to cheer myself with wine, and while still seeking wisdom, I clutched at foolishness, foolishness. In this way, I tried to experience the only happiness most people find during their brief life in this world. So he goes after wine. He goes after what we learn in the Bible as the party lifestyle. And this guy throws unbelievably massive, incredible parties. Huge Huge parties. The Bible actually talks about how much food was required in his palace every single day. This is 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 22. It says, The daily food requirements for Solomon's palace were 150 bushels of choice flour, 300 bushels of meal, 10 oxen from the fattening pens, 20 pasture-fed cattle. Right, these, these guys, this is like the organic stuff right here. 100 sheep or goats as well as deer, gazelles, roe deer, and choice poultry for the day. The day. So he's bringing all of these people in. This is how much food he's feeding them. Most scholars estimated it was ten to 15,000 people that would eat that food in the palace every single day. So seven days a week. He is holding a party at the palace that requires that much food. He is bringing in the best food, the best drink, the best live entertainment, the best bands, the best whatever it is, stuffing everyone silly with food. He's just unloading keg after keg after keg. People can't keep up with it. And and so Solomon thinks that the best, wildest party you've been to is pretty cute. He thinks it's pretty quaint. right? He's thinking, oh, you cranked music on your stereo. You got a new subwoofer. That's neat. I charioted in 10 DJs all of their light rigs, they played for years, right? I mean, that's neat. I'm glad you had a nice, cute little party. You guys ran out of food and alcohol. That's neat. I actually owned the hills and all of the cattle on those hills and all of the vineyards and all of the grapes and all the wine. We could actually not eat or drink enough of it to run out ever in your lifetime, which is going to keep going on and on and on. Oh, you had 100 people show up at your house party. Didn't have room. The cops showed up. Neat. 15,000 people show up at my door every day to get a little experience of what it's like to be me. This guy throws, like, you ever, you ever known a one-upper? Like a guy who's, oh, so sick. Yeah, well, I was so sick once I died. And you're like, everything you say, this guy can one-up. It's Solomon could one-up any party that you have ever been to. Any act of, of enjoyment that you've ever experienced. He's like, no, I did that. No one has partied like Solomon seven days a week For years. For years. He throws these parties and all you can eat and all you can drink, all you can do. He packs it all in and verse one, (coughs) he concludes, I said to myself, come on, let's try pleasure. But I found that it was meaningless. It was meaningless. It took him a few years, but it was long enough to discover it didn't work. So he moves on to the next thing. That's what we do when it comes to pleasure, when it comes to fun and contentment. Well, that didn't work. I'll go try something else. And so he does. Chapter two, verse four, it says, I also tried to find meaning by building huge homes for myself, by planting beautiful vineyards. I made gardens and parks, filling them with all kinds of fruit trees. I built reservoirs to collect the water to irrigate irrigate my many flourishing groves. That just sounds classy. You got a nice place? Yeah, it's pretty nice. Do you have any flourishing groves? Right? Like this guy had many, many, many flourishing groves. And, and so he basically starts his own contracting business, his own construction business, his own landscaping business. One of the first things he does is build his own house. The Bible says it takes 13 years. 13 years to construct his house. It is gigantic, he does not hold back on anything. I don't know if you've ever built a house, but the the contractor will come with you and say, well, do you mean you could have this or this? This one's a little bit more, but it might be a little bit better and you gotta make a choice. Someone's like, give me all of it, give me all the best. I don't care how much or how long it takes. 13 years and his house is built. He actually built a house for every one of his wives. Uh, He had 700. They all got a house. Polygamy is not just a sin. It is incredibly inconvenient. Quite expensive. Don't do it. Mainly for the sin reason, <laughs> but also your wallet. So he builds, in essence, it's a, a city, a, a, like a, a huge city, hundreds of homes, surrounds it with a, a forest, puts parks in the middle of it, and builds an irrigation system to make sure that all of it is watered. Right, so he, he. I was happy when the grass seed on my lawn grew, and it took me multiple tries. This guy built a national forest. Right, I can't put my hose away without trying a few times to wrap it up. He's like, yeah, I built an irrigation system, carved out pools and told the water where to go. He's the wisest guy to ever live. He just pulls it off. There's actually three huge pools that still exist to this day uh, near Bethlehem and near Palestine. They're called Solomon's Pools. We're not sure whether it was really his or they just copied the idea that he came up with, but they're still standing. This is what he's known for. He changed the world. And so he builds all these things and he found it boring after a decade or two. So it goes on to the next thing. That's what we do. Oh, that didn't work, I'll keep searching. And uh, we already talked about uh, what he's tried. He goes on to the ongoing accumulation of women. <clears throat> 700 wives. 300 concubines. It's not a word you hear a lot. Not in modern day. What a concubine was was someone who lived at the palace with him but held a lower status than wife, but they were still otherwise available. If you know what I mean. <laughs> the, the Greek for... Concubine is probably friend with benefits. That's probably what it is. I didn't look it up, but we can guess. So when Solomon says he tried pleasure, he tried pleasure. He could have gone to bed every night with a different woman and not seen the same person until year four. Can you imagine? Oh, see you again. How have the last few years been? What's new? Neat. He does that for, <laughs> for years. He says that it's boring. Didn't give him what he wanted. He didn't find contentment with it. Here's what he says in verse 10. Anything I wanted, I would take. I denied myself no pleasure. I even found great pleasure in hard work. Like most of us like, what? You were that desperate that you found pleasure in work? A reward for all my labors. But as I looked at everything I had worked so hard to accomplish, it was all so meaningless like chasing the wind. There was nothing really worthwhile anywhere. He denied himself no pleasure and yet he didn't find contentment. He didn't find the thing that would satisfy him, he didn't find the thing that left him feeling fulfilled, it all left him feeling empty, chasing wind, chasing smoke. And that's what happens on a journey when you try to find contentment in anything that, that's pleasure or fun. It, it's, it might work for a little while, but it'll get bored and you'll go to the next thing and then you'll go to the next thing and then you'll go on to the next thing. Maybe this will be the one I don't get bored of. Maybe this will be the one that, that I kind of stick with and it'll give me purpose. And Solomon is here to say, listen, I spent all the money, I took all of the years, I tried all of the things. None of it left me feeling content. None of it gave me the meaning and contentment I was looking for. So what he's saying then is not that pleasure and fun are bad. Right? That's not what he's saying. God is the author, the creator of fun and pleasure. God is the source of good times and laughter. God didn't have to make anything enjoyable. You understand that, right? He didn't have to make food taste good. He didn't have to make things smell good. He didn't have to make things feel good. He just did. He gives us good gifts He gives us things that are pleasurable and fun. It's the story of of creation. Day one, he created it all. He's like, that's good. And day two, he finishes. He's like, that's also good. Day three, he's done. He's like, that's really good. All of his creation is good. Everything in it is good. Even sex. Listen, I know we tiptoed around it a minute ago. We don't have to be prudes. It's pretty good. (laughs) You think about what paradise was in the garden. He created Adam and Eve. They're wearing nothing. That's a great start. People who say God is no fun have obviously not read chapter one of the Bible. Starts off pretty great. One man, one woman, huge garden, no clothes. What's the first command in the Bible? Be fruitful and multiply. Listen, I know it's a euphemism. This is not complex theology. We know what he's talking about. God is the author of pleasure, not the enemy of it. He's the author of it. He's not the enemy of it. And I don't know at what point in history a shift occurred where everyone was convinced that God is some kind of cosmic killjoy out to destroy all of our fun, but there is not one pleasurable thing under the sun that he did not create. We are wired for good times, for enjoyment, for pleasure, for laughter. We're made in his image. We get all that from him. We get that from dad. That's what he gave to us. 1 Timothy 4.4 4. It says, since everything God created is good, we should not reject any of it, but receive it with thanks. Okay, done deal. Let's go have fun. It's good. It's great. The point today isn't to conclude that fun is terrible and meaningless and you should avoid it. The point today is to avoid the temptation to make the pursuit of pleasure and fun the number one pursuit in your life. It is the warning that if you pursue fun and pleasure as the object that will give you contentment, you will come up empty and it will not give you what you need. It is to be enjoyed, it is to be good, you should have good times, but in a life that is completely centered around Christ first. The warning in the Bible is to make sure all of the secondary things are not the main thing in your life, that's idolatry. You look back on the Ten Commandments, the first one is don't have any other gods other than me. As a kid I used to think, what other gods are there? And as we grow up we learn, anything you put in front of Jesus is a God. Anything that takes precedence over him in your life, anything you choose first in your life over him becomes an idol that you worship. It doesn't mean we necessarily know that we're doing it when we do it, but pleasure for so many people in our world has become the number one pursuit. It is the object that they will chase after to find contentment and fulfillment and satisfaction. And they try one thing and it doesn't work and they go to another thing, and it doesn't work and they go to another thing, The pursuit of good times, travel, vacations. It's a motivator for so many people, even Christians. Even Christians, they'll pursue these things above Jesus time and time again. There are people that struggle with whether or not to tithe, and they're about to go on their fourth cruise. People that show up to church once every three months, but you better believe they've made time for their hobbies. We're stepping on some toes yet? It's not like we deliberately do it. We don't wake up and say, today I'll choose movies over Jesus. It 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 doesn't happen that way. It's subtle. It's slow. But we see it happening in the way that we organize our time, the way that we budget our money, the things that we prioritize over other things. We're all of a sudden pursuing pleasure and fun and enjoyment to find contentment that we're only going to find in Jesus, but for whatever reason, we think he's not going to be good enough. But I have to go to all these other things. That'll, that's what really charges me up and fires me up. You just haven't experienced it yet. He is the ultimate source of enjoyment and contentment and pleasure and fun. We need to be reminded that it's found in Christ alone. All the other things should be secondary. This is what 1 John 2.15 says. Do not love this world, nor the things it offers you. For when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. For the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see, and pride in our achievements and possessions. These are not from the Father. They are from the world. And the world is fading away, along with everything that people crave. But anyone who does what pleases God will live forever. He's not saying that Enjoyment and possessions and all of those things are not from God, but it's the craving for more. It's the craving that I'll just need a little bit more. It's the craving for possessions. It's the craving, meaning that's what I hunger for. That's what I wake up and want. These are the things I'm thirsting for. That's like the woman at the well. Jesus is like, you can get me a drink of water and find out she's on husband number five. Why? Because, well, this is the thing that's going to give me contentment. This is the thing I keep trying to drink to find that that will will be the thing that quenches my thirst. And Jesus eventually says, listen, you can drink that water all you want. You're still going to be thirsty. But anyone who drinks the water of life that I give will never thirst again. You're looking for it in all these other places. And I am the source. I'm the only one who can give you contentment. We think it's in pleasing ourselves that we'll find contentment. But it's in pleasing God, the Bible says, that we'll finally unlock our contentment. There's another verse I see all the time that (laughs) gets taken out of context quite a bit. Psalm 37, 4. Take delight in the Lord and he will give you your heart's desires. Have you ever heard this one? Have you used this one? People love to quote this verse as if to say, God's just going to give you what you want. God will give you the desires of your heart. We, We leave out that first line. No, if you delight in the Lord, then he will give you the desires of your heart. And and what he's really saying there is that once you delight in the Lord, the desires in your heart might actually change. And the things that you were drawn to before might not actually hold the allure they once held for you because you found what you were looking at in him. You found what you were looking for in him. Delight in him first, and all of these other things will be given to you And you will find enjoyment and satisfaction in them, but your contentment is to find delight in the Lord first. It's not about just God giving you whatever you want. We'll discover sometimes that our desires change. We don't have to keep jumping to the next thing once you find Christ. You don't have to keep drinking water until you find Christ, and he is the one that quenches it. But our world world keeps searching. Keeps looking. You know what bizarre cultural phenomenon really confuses me right now? Uh, The toy unboxing videos on YouTube. Does anyone know what I mean? Anyone have kids in here and your kids watch kids open up toys on YouTube? Or just unboxing videos in general. People unbox things on YouTube all the time. And and it's just this weird thing. There's a kid, six-year-old kid who made $11 million last year on YouTube. A true story. His name's Ryan. Six years old, there was an article on him in the Washington Post three weeks ago. He was the number eight grossing YouTuber of last year. He opens toys. He has 10 million subscribers and he made $11 million. See, why? Why do we watch people open up stuff on YouTube? We're just looking at stuff. Here's a box. Here's what was in it. Oh, it's what was on the box. Right? Here's the box. Here's the video game. It's just a disc. I can't show you anything more than that, but it's, it's really neat. Here's the box of beauty supplies. It's, here's the here's thing. You're just looking at what was on the box, but we're drawn to it. We want to see it. This is new. This is shiny. This is neat. I want that. I like that. I'll watch that. And, and then we're like, oh, I can have that box at my house. And so you get it Amazoned to your house and you open it up and I'm going to have my own unboxing video. You open it and you're like, there it is. I'm gonna go watch some more. I see. I like that one. That one's neat. Let's get that one. And it shows up when this old stuff. That's old now. I need a new thing. And we're drawn to the next thing, and the next thing, the next new thing, the next shiny thing. We desire what we don't have, and it's this endless pursuit of of searching for contentment. So what do we do with this pleasure and fun? They're not bad, but they're not going to give us what we're ultimately looking for until we find it in Christ. Didn't give Solomon what we needed, what he needed. And it won't give what, what we need. So what do we do? What's our solution? The Bible tells us. 1 Timothy 6.6. 6. It says, Yet true godliness with contentment is itself great wealth. After all, we brought nothing with us when we came into the world, and we can't take anything with us when we leave it. So if we have enough food and clothing, let us be content. Did you catch that? If you have enough, you should be content. Paul says, be content with what you have. If it's enough, great. Godliness plus contentment, that's wealth. It's not about more stuff and more fun. It's about choosing to look at what you have right now and saying, this is enough. This is good. I can be satisfied with this. And Paul would know. Paul's not, you just know he's not a guy that's just writing this because it sounded good. Paul's a guy who lost everything he had. Paul was once a guy that had money, he had wealth, he had power. He lost it all in his pursuit of Jesus Christ. And he gets sent to jail time and time again. The only thing he owns are the clothes on his back. He has to bunk up with other people when he travels from city to city to city. He's got nothing. And yet this is what he goes on to write in Philippians 4 verse 10. He's at a point again where he's in jail and lost everything. And he says, How I praise the Lord that you're concerned about me again. I know you've always been concerned about me, but you didn't have the chance to help me. Not that I was ever in need, for I have learned how to be content with whatever I have. I know how to live on almost nothing or with everything. I have learned the secret of living in every situation, whether it's with a full stomach or empty, with plenty or little, for I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength." So we often see that verse and we see it when people talk about victory and finding their power in Jesus. I can do all things through Christ. That's great. But the context was contentment. The context is saying, God will give me the strength to be content with whatever it is my life looks like. In other words, your circumstances do not dictate your contentment. But you choose to be. Paul says, I learned how to be content. It's really unfortunate that he said that because I wish it wasn't true. But he says, I learned. Church contentment is a learned quality. That means you can develop it. It means you can get better at it. It means that you choose to do it. I'm going to learn how to be content with what I currently have. Paul says, I was content when I had a lot. That was great. And I lost everything and I still learned how to be content. Because God gave me the strength to do that. Paul's circumstances didn't control him. But he found contentment in Christ and all of the joy in his life flowed out of that. That's what gave him satisfaction and fulfillment. And so the same should be with us. Our contentment shouldn't be dependent on our circumstances, our possessions, on our next trip, on our next vacation, the toys that we've got in our house. We can learn to be content when we've got Nothing. Because God can give us the strength to do that. And so some challenges for us this week as we continue to learn how to be content in our own lives. One of them is change the way that you look at your stuff. So many of us look at our stuff from the viewpoint of this is all I have. What if you looked at your stuff as I have so much? God has blessed me with so much. I have more than I need. I have an abundance of what I need. And it's changing the way you think. See, we think, well, I, just, I need a little bit more. I need a new shirt. I need a new pair of shoes. I need to go get a new whatever. It's like you really don't. You could be content. You could learn to be content with whatever it is you have right now. If Christ gives you the strength. I'm, I want to challenge you guys to not buy stuff for a little while. This is hard. This is a challenge I gave myself last year. said, so I'm going to go a month without buying anything. Obviously, you can buy gas. You can buy groceries. You need to live, feed your kids, good land. But anything above and beyond that, no purchases, no drive-through, no books, no movies, no apps, no no toys, no games, no nothing. I I said I'm going to go a month and I'm not going to buy anything. This should be easy. It was just Christmas. I got some things. They shouldn't be old now. They're old and I'm bored. It was so hard. I had a bunch of people join me on this journey. We made it like 72 hours and we we're like, this is terrible. We need to unlearn some habits that we have built into our life that says my enjoyment and my pleasure needs to come from the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. And we need to get better at looking at the things we have and saying, I'm good with just this. In fact, if I lost all of this, I've still got him and he's all I need. In fact, the call to Christ is a call to what? Deny yourself. Deny yourself to take up your cross, to lose everything you own. And it's in letting go that you will actually find that you will get what you are looking for all along. We have been enslaved to our stuff, to our pursuit, to our enjoyment, to our things, our possessions, our pleasures, and the only way we can break it is to step away and say, I'm not gonna do this for a little while. It will be so hard, but I dare you to do it. I dare you to ask him to help you. You can do all things through Christ that gives you strength. You've quoted it before, just not about buying stuff. It's way harder. Contentment is found in Christ alone. And so maybe for some of us, it's just reorienting what our life is built around. It's reorganizing our calendar. It's reorganizing our budget. It's maybe rethinking our church attendance. What do you value? What do you think is going to give you your true contentment? It'll be hard But if we don't, we'll just discover what Solomon has already discovered on our behalf. It's all meaningless without God. He says in verse 24 of chapter 2. So I decided there's actually nothing better than to enjoy food and drink and find satisfaction in work. And then I realized these pleasures are from the hand of God. For who can eat or enjoy anything apart from Him? See, the world is trying to do these things apart from Him to find contentment. And the goal all along is to find him and those things will actually find their purpose in God. Pleasure finds its purpose in God, but it will leave you empty without him. It's the Turkish delight from the Chronicles of Narnia. And you will devour it and it will seem great. And when it's done, you'll be like, gross, I want to die. That's because you did it without God. All of those things are good, but they are not intended to be God They are gifts from God to be enjoyed from God when he is the one whose life we are centered around. When he is the one that we are pursuing to find contentment. Church, we should be the one setting the bar for the rest of the world with what pleasure and enjoyment and fun and laughter looks like. Because no one gets it right except the church. So let's live it well. Let's enjoy life. Let's laugh a lot. But let's show the world that it's found in Christ and nothing else that we have. Amen.